Well, we are heading towards the end of our Christmas series uh, because Christmas is going to be here soon, believe it or not. Can you imagine that? And uh, we are, we've titled our Christmas series, God with Us. God with Us. And basically, when we talk about Christmas, we celebrate Jesus uh, being born. And what it is, is God uh, took on flesh. And that was a, 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 a sign, if you will, a, a manifestation of just how much God wants to be with us. He wants to dwell with us. But that theme is actually runs all throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, we see it time and time again where God wants to dwell with his people. In fact, as you seek the Lord, when you find him, one of the most extraordinary things is that you discover that even though you were seeking him, he sought after you first. And he has always wanted to dwell with his people. The creator always wanted to dwell with his creation. And as we are thinking about Christmas and, and thinking about what it is that God wrapped himself in flesh and took on human form so that way he could dwell with us to make a way, uh, we also look and, and uh, something that was put on Pastor Phil's uh, heart through this uh, Christmas season, which I'm very grateful for, is a look at the tabernacle, a look at the tabernacle. So we've been taking the last few weeks to kind of study, well, what is this place? And for those of you who maybe this is your first time joining and you haven't had the privilege of being able to hear some of the other uh, sermons that have led up to this moment, basically what it is, is it's a, it's a tent, it's a place of meeting, and God gave instructions for his people how to build this tent, very specifically. Um, and the word tabernacle means to dwell. And so it's this dwelling place of God's presence so that way a holy God can come and dwell with unholy people. And of course, the question is, well, how is that made possible? And we've spent the last few weeks discovering how he has made a way and how he really is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, last week, we looked at the tabernacle, and we actually took time to dissect some of the features of the tabernacle, specifically the accruedments, the furniture uh, that you find as you journey through the tabernacle. So last week, we looked at the brazen altar and the brazen laver, and we looked at the table of shewbread, and we looked at the candlesticks, and we looked at the Ark of the Covenant, and so on and so forth, and we looked at all of these utensils and all of the furniture pieces, and, and, and we discovered, and we, we pointed out how each of these were part of God's great story, and each of these pointed in some way or fashion to Jesus Christ. Every single one of them pointed to Jesus, and, and that Jesus is the greater tabernacle. He is the tabernacle made manifest, that, that, that all of a sudden something that seems so impersonal, like uh, like an ark or like uh, you know a, a, a basin or a laver, has now become personified in Jesus Christ. This week, who we're looking at are the priests, those that ministered in the tabernacle, and and what what part do they play in the story of God? What part do they play when we talk about the narrative of Christmas? And who are these priests? And what do they do for 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 Jesus? And and what do they represent? And and how does that impact our lives? So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so there's really going to be three parts to this message. We're going to talk about the old priest, 
the greater high priest and the new priest. The old priest, the greater high priest, and the new priest. And so our assignment this morning is found in Exodus chapter 28. So if you have your Bible, would you turn to Exodus chapter 28? Um, If you don't have your Bible or maybe you don't have a Bible app downloaded on your phone, that's okay. We will have the verses up on the screens for you. And it says this, this is God talking to Moses. He's giving Moses instructions about the tabernacle. And he says this, have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so that they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so he may serve me as priest. These are the garments that they are to make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so that they may serve me as priests. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray, God, that your spirit will just illuminate to us its truth, God, that we, Heavenly Father, will have open hearts and open minds to be able to receive what you would have to speak to us this morning. God, we give you all the praise, Heavenly Father, for your word is true, God. We thank you, Lord God, for the death and resurrection that we are able to be here today, not because of our works, God, but because of your grace and your mercy and your love and your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. Like we've been saying throughout this whole series is that there is so much to the tabernacle to try to unpack that no individual message or even these four weeks are going to be able to do this topic justice. And so there are many parts that we wish that we would be able to stop and really dig into, but I just uh, thank you for bearing with us as we try to really bring out some nuggets to show uh, during this Christmas season the fact that God is with us. So we're going to start with the first point, old priests. Now when I say old priests, I don't mean old as in age, but I just mean in history past. The, the priests of the Old Testament, the priests that used to be in the tabernacles ministering in that way. Though that is what I mean by old priests. See, the men who served in the tabernacle were called priests, and and they were called uh, really Levitical priests, or from a Levitical priesthood. And where that comes from is this, is that when God took his people out of Egypt and they entered into the wilderness, God really formed these 12 tribes. He had taken this guy named Jacob, if you remember, and Jacob wrestled with God, and, and God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And Israel had 12 sons, and each son represented a tribe. Each son represented a tribe. And one of the son's names were Levi. And so all of Levi's descendants were part of what they call the tribe of Levi. And God had had said that that particular tribe would function as priests. Each tribe had their own function, but that tribe would function as priests you see. And so out of the one nation of Israel, God chose the tribe of Levi to serve him. So the tribe of Levi were all descendants of Levi, and they functioned as priests. Now, with that being said, 
all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Even though Levitical priesthood began with Aaron, which was actually Moses' older brother, um, and Aaron's descendants served as priests in Israel, the fact is they weren't all priests. Uh, how The Levites that weren't priests were given various duties and caretaking for the tabernacle and its furnishing. Uh, some of them were judges and, and teachers over God's law. But some of them were called specifically to be priests. Now, what that looked like when they were ready to come into priesthood, if you will, is actually something that's very interesting. It was a huge ceremony. Um, it was a seven-day ordination that would happen at the outer courts of the tabernacle. It could not happen at the inner court, and it definitely could not happen in the Holy of Holies. It had to happen in the outer court first. And part of that ceremony speaks uh, to what it means to be a priest. It speaks to what it means for sin to have entered in and what it means for an unholy people to stand before a holy God. And so the ceremony would begin, if you could just use your imaginations vividly for a moment, the ceremony would begin at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And there would be two different types of offerings Three animals and three types of bread. The animals were to be blameless. They, they couldn't have any defects on them. The bread products are to be unleavened. And both of those things indicated ceremonial cleansingness, that, that they were clean and fitting, fitted to be offered before God. And so that was the first stage, if you will. The second stage of the ceremony would be the washing. So if you remember that there was this great uh, sort of laver, laver that was there, this basin, and, and, and they, would, they would have to be washed as, uh, as a way of showing that they are being cleansed and purified. And this was required of them. If they did not do this, when they would try to enter into the, the enclosed part of the tent, into the inner court of the outer court, the, the Bible says that if they did that without being washed, they would die. And, and, and this is because consecration was important. And so washing was required. The third stage is actually a really interesting part, and I'm going to take some time on it, but the third stage was, was, uh, there, was how they were clothed, their vestige, if you will. And uh, in particular, out of all the priests that would serve, there would be one priest called the high priest. And the high priest had this sort of elaborate uh, outfit that he would wear. And it's not that fashionable, but uh, trust me, it is important. So I just kind of wanted to go through it. And you can see it there on the screen. And I just want to point out some parts that I think are very interesting. First of all, uh, God wanted the high priest to wear sort of this breastplate, if you will. So sometimes it's called the breastplate of decision. And it's to symbolize that the high priest, when he would go before God, that, that he would go representing the people of God. Because on this breast piece, there were 12 stones. Each stone, there was a name of one of the tribes on each stone that was close to the heart of the priest. I wish I had time to get into that, but I don't. And, 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 but when he would go into the presence of God, it was a symbolism that, hey, listen, I'm representing the, all of your people. This priest represents everybody. But also it was a symbolism to everybody else that God did not forget about them. 
that God did not forget about them, that God remembers them even when they don't remember God, that God remembers them even when they sin, that God remembers them even when they forget how God took them out of Egypt or how God fed them bread from manna, that God remembers them even when they forget how God was the fire of pillar by night and the cloud by day when they were going through the wilderness so that way they could survive. Even when they forgot all about that, God never forgot about them. Never forgot about them. And so he would wear these stones and what was interesting about these stones is, is that when he would go into the presence of God, these stones would actually be a way for God to communicate to the high priest the will of the Lord. If there was some decision that needed to be made and it was a yes or no answer, the high priest could go into the presence of God and, and, and through these stones, God would show him yes or no. It's how they determined God's will for various matters. Part of the priestly garb was also for their security. See, uh, uh, on the bottom hem of the, uh, 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 of the priestly garment, there were these gold bells and pomegranates that were attached. And this was because when he would enter into God's presence, specifically into the Holy of Holies, if anything went wrong, if he went in there and he was a, a person that was filled with sin, if he was a person that was disobedient to the Lord and he could not stand in the presence of God, and in fact, the Bible says that God would kill that high priest instantly. And so what would happen is the other priests would be outside of the tent and they would be listening for the noise. They'd be listening for the bells and the pomegranates. And as long as they could hear those, they knew that their high priest was alive. But if the sound stopped, they knew that God had killed him. So what they would do is they would actually tie a rope around the, the priest's ankles. And, 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 and as the priest went in into the tent, they would, they would let this rope go as the priest was doing his duties in there. And, and if they heard the sound stop and, and they knew that the priest had died in the presence of God because of some sin that this priest had, they would be able to pull the dead body out from the tent because if they would have ran into the tent, they definitely would have been struck dead immediately. Immediately, you see. So it's for their safety. The turban was plain white with a gold plate uh, placed on the forehead. On the plate was inscribed the words, holy to the Lord. I wish I had time to get into this, but holy to the Lord. It, it, it was this thing that, that happened where it was that, that the priest was representing God's people, yes, but that he was standing there as holy to the Lord. It, it, in other words, completely holy, not just for sins that they knew they committed, but even for sins that they didn't know they committed. It, it, was, it was to cover anything that might have happened, even accidental sins. Even maybe, maybe some, place, some plate was placed the wrong way, or, or, or maybe they didn't quite do something right within the tabernacle. It could have been anything. And, and it was to make sure that everything, all sin was covered, you see. All sin was covered. All of it. If you can see the, the, the garment, it had all of the colors of the tabernacle and the, the scarlets and the, and the purples and the blues. And, 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 and it was a, th this thing that showed beauty before the Lord and before the people. All of it was demonstrated to show the holiness of God. All of it was symbolic for being set apart for God's work of atoning sin. 
and the compliance with this dress code was required. It had to be worn. Otherwise, they too would die. It seemed, it might look elaborate or strange to us, but it was important and vital. And God gave specific instructions for these priestly garments. After the priest was clothed, there was this fourth stage, which is the anointing. And so special oil was made of the finest spices, including myrrh and cinnamon and olive oil and others. And they were mixed together. And, and, and the priest was then anointed. I wish I had time. But, the, but after that, then there would be the final stage of ordination. And this was the longest stage. And it required the sacrifice of three animals the bull, and two rams. For each sacrifice, something was done with the blood and something was done with the body. Something was done with the blood, say blood. blood. And something was done with the body, say body. body. The blood and the body. And the, the priest would lay their hands on each animal, signifying their identification with the animal. It was being killed instead of them. It was, it was a, a substitute, a vicarious substitute in their place. Then, uh, then what they do is they would kill each animal. They would manipulate the blood and they would handle the body. For instance, with the bull. The, the bull is sacrificed, and this sacrifice was considered a, a, an atoning sacrifice, a, a purification sacrifice, a sacrifice to be clean for the expiation of sins. So what would happen is some of the blood would be put on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering. The rest of the blood would be poured out on the base of the offering there at the altar, the, the fattiest part of the bull would then be placed on top of the altar and it would burn and it would cause this billowing smoke to go up into heaven, you see. And then the rest of the bull would actually be uh, sacrificed outside of the camp. I wish I had time to talk about how when Jesus was crucified, it was outside of the camp. I wish I had time this morning to do it. And then there was the second, then there was the, the, the first ram. And this ram is, would be considered a burnt offering before the Lord. And the whole ram, the whole body, all of the ram will be placed upon the altar and burnt before God. If any of you are looking at this and trying to imagine this and you're saying, why? This seems so painful. This seems so bloody. This seems so messy. Yes, my friend, that's what sin does. You see, that's how serious it is. Then the second ram is sacrificed as an ordination offering. See, the first two had already been messy with the throwing of blood, but now it gets messier still. With, with, the, with, with the blood, what they had to do from this third sacrifice is they would take it and they would put it on their right earlobe and on their right thumb and on their right big toe. This consecrate these body parts to, to the Lord's service, the ear to hear the word of the Lord, the hands to handle the sacrifice and the other sacred duties and the feet to be able to walk on holy ground on the sanctuary. The rest of the blood was poured against the altar then what would happen is they would come and they would take from the blood from the altar and they would begin to sprinkle it upon the robes of the priests along with the oil that was made. Yeah. 
After this, the ceremony was finally done. And now they can enter the service holding the holy things of God in his holy sanctuary, especially the high priest, especially the high priest. The high priest could do certain things that the other priests could not. The high priest could deliver uh, edicts to guide the nation. He was also permitted to enter into the most holy place. If you remember the picture from last week, when we look at the tabernacle, that there were these three zones, these three areas, the outer court, the inner court, and then the most holy place. And in this third zone, this is where only the high priest could enter. There was a huge veil, thick, thick curtain, if you will, that was in between the inner court and the most holy place. And it was in the most holy place that was the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the throne of God, the cherubim that were facing each other. And the presence of God, the Shekinah glory would come in that place and God would meet with the high priest. And it was only the high priest that he would come in. Only the high priest could enter into that space, you see. On the high priest, there were these two stones on his shoulder called the onyx stones. And there were six names written on each stone, each name representing the tribes, each name representing all of God's people. So he would come not only with stones on his chest near his heart, but he would come with them on his shoulders, carrying the burden of every person. Going before the Lord, representing every person's sin, every person's guilt, every person's wrongdoing. He would be there in the presence of God, representing it all. And he can only do that one time a year, called the Day of Atonement, to offer these sacrifices for all the people. He would take blood and he would, the same blood that he would take from the altar, he would bring into the Holy of Holies, he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And he would do this for the people and for himself. And only one high priest at a time could do this. There could only be one high priest at a time. And friends, this happened over and over and over again. Year after year after year after year for 1,500 years. Over 1,500 years, this would happen. For over 150 decades, there would be daily sacrifices, daily burnt offerings, and then one time a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Wow. Demonstrating that though all of these ceremonies and sacrifices and rituals were important, the reality was is that they knew that there had to be someone else. They knew it. It was obvious because otherwise, why would they have to keep doing this over and over and over and over again? Well, well, they knew that there had to be another representative. There had to be another mediator between God and his people. The ceremony and even the priests themselves were not enough. Humanity needed something else. Someone that was holier. Someone that was truer. Someone that was greater. They needed the greater high priest. Point two, the greater high priest. See, everything the high priest did in the tabernacle 
was to really intercede on behalf of the people of God. Everything he did from the sacrifices to the table of shewbread to the, the, the incense burning up representing the prayers uh, of his people, all of it, the, the, the golden lampstand, the, the, the basin, all of it was done because he was mediating. He was interceding on behalf of the people of God as representative of his people before God himself. This is exactly what Jesus Christ would do. I mentioned this last week, that Jesus Christ would go before God the Father and and, and present us, you see. All of it pointed, all of it pointed to Jesus. For example, when the priests made the sacrifice, the sacrifice pointed to Jesus, that one day there would be a greater sacrifice, a truer sacrifice, that one day the bull would be personified, the goat would be personified, the lamb would be personified, and there'd be a real lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So Jesus would be the sacrifice, but it also showed that Jesus Christ would be the priest making the sacrifice, that he wasn't just the sacrifice, but that he was the one doing the sacrifice. Jesus said, no one takes my life, but I lay my life down freely. It wasn't just that he was the lamb, but he was also the priest cutting the lamb and pouring the blood, you see. He was the greater high priest. In fact, look what Hebrews chapter seven says. It says this, there were many priests under the old system for death prevented them from remaining in office. In other words, they grew old, they died, so someone else had to come along. But watch this, but because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who came to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. It says he is the kind of high priest we needed because he is holy and blameless and unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and he has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Wow. He says, unlike those other high priests, he, he, he does not need to uh, offer sacrifices every day. No, no, no. He said that they did that because of their own sins first and then the sins of the people. See, they did that because they too were sinful. Right, But Jesus did it once and for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath. And his son had been made the perfect high priest forever and ever. Let me contextualize this a little bit for us to make it a little more applicable to what we are going through today. Is that okay? See, you and I, we walk around with an image in our head of who we hope to look like to other people, don't we? We do, right? And if we don't look like that, we're kind of afraid of what happens, so, so we walk around and, and, and we try to project who we want people to think we are, how we want people to look at us and, and, and to think about us. And we try to be that. We try. We, we try to say, okay, well, l- l- listen, I want to be lovable and I want to be good. I want to be moral. And, and we walk around with an image of our heads of who we hope to be, who we would like to be. But deep inside, we know we're not. And we're afraid of everyone else finding that out. 
right? And, And here's the thing. Christian or not, maybe you're in here and you don't even serve God or you don't profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but one thing that you cannot escape is this fact, that you cannot live with your own evaluation of yourself. You can't. You are constantly wanting the evaluation of others and you want that evaluation to be good. You want that evaluation to be good. No matter how much it, well, I don't care. Yeah, you do. You do. You do, you see. No matter how hard you try, your own verdict, your own pronouncement of whether you're good or bad or beautiful or ugly, it won't work. It can't. You look to someone else for that. You can't live with your own evaluation. You desperately need pronouncements from the outside. We all do. And we're constantly looking for it. The book of Romans explains this. And so it's quite impossible to deny. And that's whether you admit it or not, you know in your heart that you and your life is a trial. It is unavoidably a trial. And all of your efforts is to try to get verdicts from people. Verdicts about how you look physically or how smart you are, how intelligent you are, what your giftings are, whatever the situation is, how a good mom you are, what an incredible dad you are, what a bright student you are, what a future you have, how much money you make, where you live, all this other stuff, all of it. Well, I'm not that type of white person, or I'm not that type of black person, or I am this type of white person, or I am this type of all of it. We're trying to get verdicts from all kinds of people for all kinds of things. Verdicts. We're under trial. Verdicts about how we are morally and personally. We're after verdicts. You're after pronouncements. You're after awards. You're after accomplishments. And you look, you're looking for some kind of word from outside of you. Some out there somewhere from somebody. Some kind of word from the outside. And what you're really looking for is a word from the Lord of the universe. Because you know that there's an ultimate courtroom. There's an ultimate bench that you stand before. There's an ultimate courtroom that you are in. And your life is in question. And here's the real question. The question isn't, are you in court? We know your life is. The question is, are you there alone? You see those TV shows, right, or those movies where where all of a sudden the person stands up and says, listen, I'm not going to have a lawyer. I'm going to represent myself, right? And all of a sudden they they just know all these laws and they're just doing it and they sound so smart and stuff. And in the end of the movie, the person wins. And it was amazing because he did it without a lawyer, right, type of thing. But most lawyers who watch movies like that know that that doesn't really happen. That doesn't really happen. For the most part, most people, 99% of people are not going to walk into a courtroom when they are on trial, stand before a judge and a jury and say, I'm going to represent myself. Would you do that? No, of course not. You see? Because you need someone else to represent you. You need an advocate. Without an attorney, without a representative, to be your own representative just does not work. You and I need someone to stand in proxy to represent us, you see. We need a representative. And watch this and write this down. Jesus was not born of a virgin in a manger just so he can represent God, but also so he can represent us. 
Jesus was not born of a virgin in a manger just so he can represent God, but also so he can represent us. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. How is Jesus my advocate? Oh, 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 he's your advocate because he's your great high priest. You see? He intercedes for you. Did did you read that? In Hebrews where it says, he he, he forever is the great high priest and he is interceding on whose behalf? His? No, on your behalf. He's interceding for you. How does that make him my advocate? Well, look at what New Testament scholar, theologian D.A. Carson says. says. He says this, the word intercede doesn't just mean something priests do. Of course, priests intercede to God for the worshipers, but the word intercede also holds a legal meaning. It also meant to appear as a representative in court, to appear as the representative of someone who was on trial. And that immediately begins to open new doors for us. Wow. See, what Jesus is doing right now, you say, okay, he died, he rose again, so what's he doing? He's just kind of sitting back on a beach somewhere in paradise, chilling, you know, right hand of the Father, sitting on the throne. No, no, no. You see, the Bible says what he's doing right now is he is presenting a case. He is pleading a case. He is representing us. He's advocating on our behalf right now. Right now. And and he's doing it to two people. The, The first person is God. See, he's going to the father and he says, listen, you demand justice. You are a just God. Well, here are are my brothers and my sisters. Here are are the people uh, whose halves I have died for. They are guilty, but I have died for them. And because I died for them, I paid the payment they could not pay. That's my blood on them. And it would be unjust to accept two payments for the same debt. Therefore, because I've made the payment for their debt, I'm not here to ask for mercy. I'm here to ask for justice. You you see, most of the time we say, well, we want the mercy of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. Oh, trust me, we do. But usually what we say is, well, what we don't want is the justice of God. No, no, we don't want the wrath. We don't want the justice of God. But friends, let me tell you, yes, you do. Yes. Yes, you do. Because this is what he's saying. He says, listen, your very justice, your very righteousness demands complete embrace and acceptance of them throughout all eternity because my blood is on them. That's what Jesus is saying. New Testament scholar and theologian N.T. Wright puts it this way. The intercessory work of Jesus Christ, the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, the substitution of Jesus Christ, who lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died in your place, has changed things forever. So now the very law and justice and righteousness of God demands your acceptance. God's justice, God's law demands for you to be accepted in his presence. Because Jesus Christ is our high priest. And so he's putting the evidence. He's saying, look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. Look at my blood. Here's the evidence that they are accepted. But there's another person he's presenting the case to. And that's you. He's presenting it to you. You see, every day you're making arguments. Every day you're pleading a case. You're pleading a case not just to everyone else, but to yourself. Because you know your heart. You know your sin. 
And, and, there's, this, and there's this thing within you where you're, you're hearing what God says about you. You're hearing what Jesus Christ says about you and knows about you. And you're hearing what yourself says about you and knows about you. And there was a tension between the two. Because you know your own heart. You know when I say that you are holy, there's something inside of you that shouts back, no, I'm not. Right? When I stand there and say, listen, before God right now, right this very millisecond, you are righteous before him. And there's something inside of you that says, I beg to differ. See, one of the things that bothers me most about churches, all churches, is that on the average, the people in those churches are much more touchier, sensitive, much more prone to bicker, much more prone to gossip, much more prone to bite and devour each other than even your, your average YMCA member. <laughs> See, the average non-Christian body is far more tolerant, far more forgiving, far more less for biting and scratching, devouring, angry, and gossip than the average Christian community. Wow. Why? Why? Well, because it, here's the thing. If, if you think that you're going to somehow get into God's presence because of your good works, somehow that you're doing it because of something that you can do, some sort of behavior that, if I just change this behavior. If I just do this, then, then all of a sudden, yep, I'll be accepted. If you think that's it, then, then, then what will happen is you will be crushed under the weight of reality. You'll know that underneath all of the things that you try to present as holy is dirty and, and filled with iniquity. And so because of that, and because you know that something is wrong, you get defensive. You're not able to take criticism. You feel the need to push other people down, to throw someone else under the bus, so that way you can look good, to try to keep face so nobody knows that you dropped the ball, to try to over-explain so that way people feel like, okay, yeah, that person has it all together. They must know what they're talking about. But spiritually, you're a mess. And we know it, right? See, if we go to an interview, or maybe it's about to be your big debut, you're doing something that's your big debut, or maybe you're looking for romance and you're on a date, right? You don't just go to those things natural. You don't say, I'm going to be myself. No one's themselves. <laughs> no, right? Of course not. You have to look great. You have to cover yourself. You have to minimize the bad things about yourself. You have to minimize the defects. And you have to maximize the assets and the giftings and all of that. You have to do all of that, right? Right? You don't date somebody and say, hey, let me tell you, you know, about my snoring habit and, and, and what I do that's going to annoy you and, and, and how I always want to get the last word in in a fight. And I mean, nobody says those things on the date, right? Of course not. Nobody goes to an interview and says, well, let me first tell you that I'm kind of rebellious and I'm lazy and I don't really listen to instructions very good. And nobody says that in the interview, right? No, because we all sense that we have to present ourselves a certain way. And you may be able to present yourself in such a way to everyone else, but no, how matter, no matter how much of a nice person you are, how much money you make, how many agree, degrees you obtain, what kind of car you drive, what clothes you wear, whatever it is, the words you say, how wise you sound, no matter all of it, you know 
that underneath it, it doesn't matter if you're the greatest dad, amazing mom, greatest grandparent, most impeccable student, whatever it is, greatest employee, wonderful boss, amazing CEO, you know underneath all of that all, all of that, there is something wrong. You can't even keep your own standards, no matter how hard you try. We all feel like outsiders. You aren't good enough. That's the script that's running through our heads. That's the script that says, no, 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 no. You see, God's calling me right. I can't be righteous. You know? God's saying, oh, I want you to be holy. Oh, pff, yeah, right. How's that going to happen? And Jesus is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus is saying, wait a minute. If I am your high priest, not just in theory, but in actuality, then that changes your life. Because you're constantly warring between living in the tension of what you say about yourself and what Christ says about you. And you need an advocate. You need somebody to come along every day to show you the evidence, to show you the case, to show you the cross, to show you the empty tomb, to show you that, yes, you were guilty of sin, but because of my blood, because of the blood of Jesus, you are now made pure and righteous before the all-living God. You need somebody to come and give you that evidence to tell yourself. You say, well, wait a minute, what's the evidence? What does the word of God say about who I am and about my identity? Oh, my friend, it says a lot. As we get ready to close, for instance, in 1 Peter 2, chapter 9, look what it says. It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Do you see that? See, because there's the old priests and then there's the greater high priests, but then there are new priests. Did did you see that? He says you're a chosen uh, people, a royal priesthood, new priests. Look what Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller says. He says, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, but you are a royal priesthood. The Bible says that priestliness, that access to the presence of God, and that ability to minister and serve people, which was once only for the elites, for the Abrahams and the, and the Moseses and the Aarons and so on, is now the calling and the office of every single Christian believer. Wow. See, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the Bible says that that veil that kept people from the inner court into the Holy of Holies, the Bible says that that veil was ripped from the top to the bottom. That when Jesus Christ died, that that veil was ripped. And what that meant was this, not so God could come out, but so we could go in. Not so God could come out, but so we can have access, full access. And the Bible says we can come boldly before the throne of God. Back in the day when there were kings, you could not just run boldly before the king. You'd be executed, sentenced, thrown in prison, maybe tortured. There were penalties for that. But see, you are now a child of the king. The only person that could come boldly before a king then was his little child. The little child can burst through the throne room and and run up to him, little four-year-old, little five-year-old, whatever it is, and gain access to the king. You and I are sons and daughters of the king, and we have access, you see. You say, oh, no, 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 Pastor Roger, that can't be me. I'm not perfect. Well, Hebrews 5 tells us that the priests weren't perfect. In fact, Hebrews 5 says that that that's what enabled them to even be the priests for what they needed to do because they they were able to, to, to come and to empathize with everybody they represented because they too were sinners, you see. 
They too were sinners. When Jesus died on the cross, it says that he took on our sin. He became our sin, you see. What does it mean to be a priest today? Well, see, we've each been given gifts. Gifts. Gifts to minister to each other. Gifts to love each other. Gifts to encourage each other. To sharpen each other. To, 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 hold, to carry each other's burdens. That's what it means to be a priest today. To love. We're able to commune together. We're able to take holy communion together, you see, as priests. But see, the reason why you're not jumping and shouting and screaming amen or whatever it is is because the reality is is that that's hard for you to believe. That's hard for you to believe. That you are a priest. That you are a priest. Listen to this quote. It says this, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it. This is from Dallas Willard. Or even... Uh, when we believe that we believe it. But we believe something when we act as if it were true. See, you know you believe something, that you really believe something when you act on it. When your actions show otherwise. When you show love, when you're there for one another, when you're ministering together, when you're lifting each other up, when you're carrying each other's burdens, when you're doing these things, you, you, you then are demonstrating who Christ is in you. And if that's not the case, if the, the narrative, the voice, that somehow, some way, you are still guilty, if you still fear that, you, that, that, that somehow that you, have not, that you will not be eternally in the presence of God, if that's true, then you have not encountered the gospel, you don't know the grace of Jesus, you have not experienced his love, and you need to encounter him. Because he is presenting a case. He is showing you evidence. Even in the midst of your pain and your suffering. He is showing you evidence. Even when you're being confused or hurt. Or, or, or you feel like you've been abused in some way. He's showing you evidence. He's showing it to you. You say, no, no, Pastor Rod, you don't understand. I struggle with temptation. Or, or, or I struggle with depression. Or I, I struggle with anger. Or you don't understand what goes on inside my mind, inside my heart. And you're right. I'm trying to present this to everybody else. But I'm a mess inside. And, and, I, and, and I just don't think that, that Jesus wants anything to do with that. Oh, my friend, that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that he gets down in the dirt and in the mess and in the mud. And he trades places with you. The gospel says that he takes your dirty shirt and he robes you with his robes of righteousness, you see. So just as the priests stand clothed, beautifully adorned, we now stand clothed in the robes and righteousness of Jesus Christ. The old priests, the great high priests, and the new priests. See, the reason we're able to do that is because of Jesus Christ. As you stand to your feet and we get ready to respond to the message this morning. I wonder how many of you need to have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying about you. Because some of you are, you, you are holding yourselves back from entering to the presence of God because of shame, because of guilt 
But God wants to give you truth. He's showing you the evidence and he's saying, let me show you the truth. And see, my friends, once you know this truth, it is this truth that sets you free. In Jesus' name.